Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Two themes uh, that I've been wrestling with. Uh, I've been, we've been in a, 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 a groove here. We've been talking about spiritual warfare, and in uh, particular, we've been talking about what the Bible defines as familiar spirits. And uh, how, do we, how do we deal with familiar spirits? Uh, that brings us right into the whole concept of generational curses. You know, is that even scriptural? You'll hear different things from different people. Some people will say, well, it's a generational curse and I'm laboring under that. And other people say, hey, you got saved. That was taken care of at the blood, by the blood at the cross, and, uh, which is true. Well, the fact is uh, there can be these influences if we don't understand what's really going on. And, and so we've been talking about that. You can go back and look at the last few weeks and get up to speed on that. We did some Hebrew word studies and, and that kind of thing. Uh, but one of the things that we've been talking about in that regard is that when we're talking about spiritual pollution, if you want to call it that, or influences that come down through the generations, it is as much psychological and sociological or uh, psychological, emotional, and you know the way we think, and relational as anything else. And so it's not first and foremost spiritual because what provides the tracks for the enemy to ride in on, the, what provides the open door is the way we think and the way we relate. And so those relational patterns are what create an inroad for the enemy. And so what we need to do is we need to restructure our relationships. There's a sense in which we are saved and we're being saved. Salvation is an event, but it's also a process. Your spirit is saved. Your soul is being saved. And sometimes it breaks into your body in the form of healing, which is a temporary patch on a dying thing until Jesus comes and you get a new body. Hallelujah. The older I get, the more I'm looking forward to a new body. I was helping one of my sons move the other night. We had... We had these bookcases that we were bringing from the third floor, and just as we got down to the, the first floor landing, I thought, oh, we should have took the shelves out. Duh. The second one was a whole lot easier. But when I tried, I tr- put it on the ground, I tried to pick it back up, and my knee gave out. Man, I went on the ground, and my, son, my sons are like, Dad, we don't want you to have a heart attack. I said, I'm not that old. Come on, man. But then I fall, and I'm on the ground, you know. It, uh, I can't wait for a new body. Hallelujah. So our spirit is saved. Our soul is being saved. And when we talk about our soul being saved, what we're talking about is discipleship. It's the, the process of sanctification and maturity and growing up in the Lord. How does that work? Well, your soul is made up of your mind, will, and emotions. We're renewing our mind through the word. That can happen on accident or it can be intentional. You know, there's a lot of people that grow on accident. <laughs> they just kind of stumble into spiritual growth. We want to be people who are very intentional in going after this thing. And as we were talking this morning, as we were singing this morning, this has everything to do with the future generations. Your, the, the generations of your family line, should the Lord tarry, are dependent upon how you carry yourself in the present. You can release blessings for generations, or you can complicate things for your kids. They end up fighting the giants. They end up fighting the enemy that you, you allow to remain in your promised land. And so the more you conquer, the greater uh, victory that you can uh, give to your children through inheritance, spiritually speaking. So, so when we're talking about grow, uh, being saved in our soul, the process of that We are being discipled, we are maturing, we are growing up in the faith. We need to renew our mind. You need to confront the lies that you believe. That is an ongoing thing. In fact, if you don't read the Bible and every now and then stop and think, that's got to be wrong. That that can't mean what what I just read. Then I really doubt that you're reading your Bible. Because the Bible will confront your thinking. And none of us have it all figured out. We are still growing. We're we're growing in our knowledge, and God wants to confront our belief system. He wants to change our minds. And so we need to renew our mind. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. 
You know, your mind is a wonderful tool for the kingdom. It's an old saying, the mind is a great, uh, a, a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. It's a tool given to you by God. But if you're not careful, the enemy can use that weapon, that tool against you. And so we need to submit our thinking to the word of God. Again and again, we need to subject it. What does the word say? I want to align myself with the plumb line of God's word. Now, the other thing I was tempted to get into this morning is the whole, the whole gender confusion, the whole uh, LGBTQ uh, idea, this whole thing. And we're going we're gonna to address this here in a couple of weeks. Uh, there is, we want to have great compassion for those struggling in their hearts. But make no mistake about it, God wants to deliver people from that gender confusion. God wants to deliver us. He wants to deliver those that struggle with same-sex desire. Let me, I'm, I'm in danger of getting into this this morning, but let me just dip my toe in it and uh, tell you, it's not a sin to be attracted to the same sex, necessarily. It may be the result of childhood woundedness, and we'll, we'll get into that. And there's, there, are, there are psychological profiles and patterns and definable, uh, definable experiences that are shared by many of those that struggle with same-sex desire. And so we need to have tremendous compassion. And there is, there is no condemnation if that's where you find yourself with those urges and those desires. Where it becomes sin is when we side with those things and we begin to say, this is okay in God's sight and I'm going to satisfy those desires. It's no different than any other sin in the, in the sense that any sin, I, I, when I got saved, I was an alcoholic and what drove my alcoholism was my intense anxiety. I had social anxiety. I would go through tremendous anxiety attacks where I wanted to scrawl, crawl out of my own skin. And alcohol was a great relief for that. And I would have been fine if I would have been just, you know, one guy. You know, I was not a, I wasn't a guy that wore, hold my pinky up. I was kind of a high-class drinker, you know, one glass of wine. I was like one-fifth of whiskey or one gallon of, you know, and I couldn't stop. And so when I got saved, God didn't immediately deliver me of that anxiety. I didn't know if I'd ever be delivered of that anxiety. But I had to side against it and say, you know what, regardless of how I feel, I refuse to, sat, to assuage this drive within me in a sinful way. If I've got to be a social misfit the rest of my life, then so be it. But I'm going to be true to God. I'm going to be true to his word. I didn't realize that that was the pathway of deliverance. And so there's, there's tremendous compassion and grace from heaven. God wants to deliver people. Some people are delivered in a moment. Some people are delivered uh, gradually over a long period of time. And some people are never fully delivered. I'm not, I'm not here to defend that. I'm not here I'm, to explain that this morning. I'm just telling you that regardless of our desires, that we've got to align ourselves with the word of God. That's how we renew our minds. And we can be saved in our spirit and still be very confused in our minds. Believe me, I've been there, done that. When I got saved, I had a whole lot of baggage. And I had to intentionally pursue the truth in areas. And the more complex your problems, the more intentional you should be. In fact, the danger for those of you who lived a pretty good life before you got saved, is that once you're born again, you may not see the need to really go after God like someone who was really messed up like I did. Because I knew, I knew I couldn't go out in public without getting filled with the Spirit. I remember sitting in Sunday school class as a young believer over at Calvary Open Bible. And somebody said something across the room. They quoted this verse because I was thinking, God, this is great. I'm going to heaven, but I'll be a mute till I get there because I'm so anxiety-ridden, I can't talk to people. It's, it's, it's laughable that I do this for a living. It really is. My greatest fear in life was speaking in front of crowds. 
And so I'm sitting there having this conversation with the Lord thinking, I, I'm going to be a mute till I get to heaven. And somebody just randomly spoke out this verse. They said, you know, in Ephesians chapter 5, it says, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And when he said that, it was like, I had this epiphany. It was like an arrow came across the room, hit me in the heart. And I realized that's my answer. Wine was the counterfeit of being filled with the Spirit. I've often thought it is not a coincidence that it's hidden within the fifth of Ephesians. Because I realize I've got to drink daily. You know, when, before I got saved, I wasn't one of those weekend guys. I was one of those guys. It was every day, and I was getting to the point where I drank alone and I hid things. I want to be that kind of believer. I don't want to just be a corporate drinker. I don't want to just be a weekend, weekend drinker. I want to consume him daily. I need him. I am addicted to the Spirit of God. And we need to, we need to develop that addiction because I'm telling that, that that addiction to him is what keeps us from all those other addictions. But we've got to renew our minds. And there were, there were thought processes, beliefs I had. And then, not only in my mind, there were emotional woundedness that I had in my emotions. There were things that happened to me, and I'm not unique. The enemy will target you. He is, he is a very gifted psychologist, a very gifted psychoanalyst. He's been studying the human condition for eons. And what he does is he reads the human condition and looks for a way to sabotage you if he can create emotional woundedness and then he will press on that to cause you, to entice you to relieve yourself of that momentary suffering in some way contrary to God's will. And that is the entrance into your addiction. And so when we get saved, we need to renew our minds. We need to be confronting our belief systems. We need to be questioning ourselves all the time. And we must not approach the word of God with this arrogance that says, well, I know that that's what the Bible says, but that's an ancient book and they're not as enlightened as we are. You're speaking about the God who created the universe, spans the heavens between his fingers, and so we need to humbly come to the word of God and we say, God, I believe something different than what this says, but I'm repenting and I'm changing my mind. Explain this to me. And as we do that, God begins to renew our mind. And I'm telling you, you will be transformed by the renewing of your mind as you align your life with the word of God. I said it last week, I'm telling you, when I meet people that have gone through desperate circumstances and they begin to grab onto the word. I, I was talking last week about, I, I've, I, I hear ladies say this, and it's ladies that have been through some things and they'll use this phrase, I got with my word. I went and got with my Bible, my word. And, and Jesus and I were reading my word. And there's something about them owning that thing. There's, there's a passion, there's a fire behind their eyes, and they own that thing, and I see transformation in those people. I'm going to tell you, the people who are truly transformed, and that can sustain that and live that, and, and live that day after day, year after year, decade after decade, are people who have become people of the word. Does the word burn in you? I, I preach and study the word for a living. Let me make a confession this morning. If I get out of the Word a couple days, my appetite for the Word diminishes. But if I will get back in, all of a sudden something is kick-started. When God begins to speak to me, and we need to get, I, I, used to go, I used to go to this, when I was in Bible school, after I got out of Teen Challenge, I would go in this church building early in the morning. I had a key. I had to report to their daycare at 6 a.m. So I'd go over to the church, get up at 4.30, go over to the church at 5 and pray for an hour. And I would walk in there and I'd first check under the seats to make sure no one was there because I was going to do something very embarrassing. I would read in the Word and say, dance before the Lord. I'd say, okay, God, here, you know, hey, I didn't I didn't dance when I was inebriated, okay? I'm an ugly dancer. Some of you have seen me dance in the spirit. I'm an ugly dancer. But I, I would just, I would do those things and I would obey him and I'd say, God, teach me. Lord, your word says that 
I'm to have abundant life, and I don't feel what I'm living is abundance. My life was a very small little life, my greatest aspiration. I thought if this church would hire me and they'd allow me to live in their closet, there was this little closet that had the mops, I thought I could fit a cot in here, and if I could just live in the house of the Lord, that would be enough. I didn't know what God had for my life, but I'd, I'd tell them, I'd say, God, Make your word real to me, Lord. Awaken my heart. Lord, your word says I'm to have abundant life and I'm not experiencing that. Teach me. And I would interact with him and I'd say, God, I don't understand your word. And I would pray and I'd say, God, I don't even know how to pray. Is this how I do it? And I would kneel and I would lay down and I would walk. But it was just this thing of saying, God, I'm putting myself before you. And I'm telling you, if you will do that, God will transform your life. You know, Jack Hayford, the, the, uh, the Christian statesman, just went to be with the Lord recently. He had a policy in his church. He would not counsel someone unless they were willing to arrive an hour early and spend an hour in prayer. Because in his mind, he said, if they're not willing to spend an hour with God, it isn't going to stick anyway. If they're not hungry enough to go after God over this thing, I'm not going to be able to solve their problems. Man, I can feel a policy coming on. Seriously, human counsel is not going to change you. My opinion of what the Word of God says isn't going to change you. You can't get it secondhand. Now, you can, you can be taught, but John's very clear. You don't have need of a teacher. You can benefit from a teacher, but you need to have a firsthand relationship with him, interacting with his word. And I'm telling you, the things that will change you and the things that will be precious to you are the things that God speaks to you directly, not the ones you heard coming across the pulpit. Last night in the worship service, we were singing a new song that the worship team wrote, and I think it was Faith was the primary writer, and then they all jumped in on it. And uh, I said, Faith, send me the lyrics to that song. Because I know last night we were in worship. And all of a sudden they sang a song. There was a couple that I wasn't familiar with. But this song started and it was like an arrow hit my heart and just broke me. And it brought me back to those early days of my walk with God. Where I'd be, I'd be busy and all of a sudden I'd feel the Lord saying, drop everything and come away with me. Just quietly excuse yourself out of this social situation and get over to the church. Or quietly excuse yourself out of the library and go up and find a, a, a classroom no one's there. And he would be waiting for me. And I'm telling you, that song brought me back to those times are so precious to me. My life hinged on those moments. And I, again, I am not unique. We need to have that first-hand relationship with Jesus. And God longs to reveal himself to you. And if you will just give him time, get in his word, make room for him to land in your life. Give him a landing strip and say, God, I'm going to step away for a moment and just give you some time. I'm telling you, God will take you up on it. And that is the pathway to transformation. Too many people, and let me, I'm going to dip my foot back in this and then we're going to move on. We will address this. And again, I want to tell you, if you struggle with same-sex desire, man, we are here to help you and to love you, and your sin is no different than anybody else's, except for this. Two things. Number one, it is being culturally encouraged. And so you have a greater burden to bear because you have a lot of voices telling you it's okay. And I'm here to tell you that God has more for you. God, God wants to deliver you and transform you. Number two, there is something unique about sexual sin in that it utilizes and it's a sin against our whole body. That's what Paul says. I don't understand that because I would think gluttony is a sin against my body. My son brought a bunch of these gourmet cookies. I've been tempted. Pray for your pastor. They were... Matter of fact, I've, I've failed in my temptation. They, uh, let's be honest here if we're going to really confess. I would think, that, but that's not what Paul says. He, he says it's unique in that it's a sin against your body. Your body becomes the instrument of sin. It's different than other sins. And that's not isolated to homosexuality. That is, that is, that is about sexual immorality in general. 
that it's the utilization for our, of our body in ways that God never intended. And the enemy will capitalize on that. And so, but here's the thing. In our culture, that is encouraged. And the lie is this. Well, I gave God an opportunity to change me, and since he didn't, I now have come to the conclusion that he made me this way. Do we apply that to every sin? Well, I gave God, God, I'm giving you three months starting now. And I'm going to sit passively by and expect a transformation. And if it doesn't happen, well, God, I guess you made me this way. I'm born to be an alcoholic. I'm born to be an adulterer. I'm born to be a thief. Or I'm born. No. Deliverance comes when we line ourselves up with the Word of God and we subject our heart and our mind. And, and I. I don't believe that people that struggle with same-sex desire choose to do that. There are things that have happened, discernible patterns in people's lives that bring them to that point. And we need to have the utmost compassion. But the fact is, it is an enticement to satisfy desires and woundedness in ways contrary to God's word that have enormous consequences. And we need to stand for people's freedom. It is not compassionate to tell somebody to just embrace that. That is not compassion. That is an atrocity. And we need to stand for people's freedom and invite them into that. Amen? And so I just want to make it public in this house. If you struggle, you are, you are welcome. In this house, if you embrace your same-sex desire, you are welcome, but you will hear the truth. And the truth is that the Jesus that loves you and made you has given us a love for you, and we want to come alongside you and love you into freedom. We want to help you any way we can. Amen. Okay. So, so the transformation, we, when we are, we are saved, we're, we are born again in our spirit. Okay? When you are born again, your spirit is made one with his spirit, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We are born again, but our soul is being saved. Our mind, will, and emotions have to begin to catch up to what's already happened in our spirit. I was having a conversation with Elliot last night. Uh, Elliot, I don't remember your last name. I don't see you, but I was talking to him last night. We were talking about tongues. And it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, when we speak in tongues, he says, I will pray with my spirit and I will pray with my understanding. Tongues is actually giving vent to what's going on in your human spirit. It's, it's expressing to God what's going on in your spirit. And it says, Paul says, I will pray with my spirit, yet my mind is unfruitful. So therefore, I will pray with my spirit and with my understanding. Then he adds this. He said, I will sing with my spirit and with my understanding. There's a place of singing in tongues. But what it is, it's, it's your spirit communicating with God about things that are above the pay grade of your puny little human mind, okay? Your mind can't comprehend. It's that beautiful uh, quote out of Tozer's book, Knowledge of the Holy. He said, there's a place in God where your mind must wait humbly outside while your heart goes into worship. We need to say to our intellect, sorry, you're just, this is, been, this is above your pay grade, it's more than you can handle. You just wait here. And we go in and we speak in tongues and we worship him and we give vent to what's in our spirit. Now, hopefully, that, our mind catches on more and more over time. We learn. We grow in our understanding. So we need to renew our mind. We need to be healed in our emotions. And we need to be disciplined in our wills. And if we won't discipline ourselves, we have a loving Father in heaven who will do it for us. Don't resist the discipline of the Lord. And if we don't do this stuff, see, people will say, well, I, I don't believe in generational curses, familiar spirits, all that stuff. It's all been done at the cross. Yeah, legally, potentially, but not necessarily actually in the sense of you've got to avail yourself to, of what God has already done for you. Any more than healing. Healing has to be appropriated by faith. Your freedom has to be appropriated by faith. And so I have to go along with the process so that I can be, become free. And the 
Familiar spirits, those, a familiar spirit is a spirit. It's not a species. It's a function, a strategy of the spiritual realm that is simply hijacking the, the, how the, God, the created order of things. What I mean by that is this, that God has designed the spiritual realm and the human condition so that we literally carry the generations in front of us in our loins. We carry them. My kids, I, I was thinking about this some time back. One of my kids was struggling, and so I was releasing some spiritual whooping in the spirit on the enemy for my children. And I was reminding myself that those encounters I had with the Lord as a young man, they were literally in my loins at that time. Though they, my, my children and my grandchildren, my great-great-grandchildren experienced the presence of God in my loins. You think, whoa, that sounds weird. Well, the book of Hebrews says that Levi actually tithed when Abraham tithed the Melchizedek. Because Abraham carried Levi, who was several generations removed, in his loins. And it was accredited to Levi's account. Everybody say this together. I, I, I. That's, that's something we usually don't think of. There is a generational element to the Christian life that you and I don't realize. And what the enemy does is he hijacks that element to begin to push evil and uh, to push uh, influence into the next generation. It's not that he created some strategy. He's hijacking the strategy that God created. That you and I, when we started to sing that song about the blessing, Man, there was heat on that this morning. Did you feel that? I want to close with that this morning. We're going to release that this morning. The dynamic is that what you and I do now has genera multiple generations of effect. That there is a blessing that we can release and not only do we release it by our activity like Abraham did over Levi, but you and I can reach back into our history and even into our family's history and remind God of things and release blessing into the future. It is true. And it's something that a lot of people don't believe. A lot of people don't understand that. Thank you, Vicki. I appreciate that affirmation. It, uh, the scriptural basis of that is Psalm 132, where Solomon begins his prayer, this strange prayer. I remember reading this years ago, and I thought, whoa, back up the theological truck. Why? What in the world is that about? He opens the psalm with this. Oh, Lord, remember David and the sufferings he endured. Why? Would a godly ruler remind God about the righteous living of a dead guy if it didn't matter? Because it did matter. God was bringing to remembrance, or Solomon was bringing to remembrance before heaven, Father, remember the sacrifices my father made to build a temple for you. It was in his heart. He wanted to create a resting place. God is relational. And he was reminding the Lord. And you see this with David's life. But again, David is not an anomaly. He's not unique in the sense that he was, he was operating in patterns that others are inaccessible to others. Uh, there, there was a, a passage, uh, one of the kings of Judah, I forget which one it was. Uh, I was just listening to it this morning. But God said, God was going to kill this king, and he was going to wipe out Judah. But he stopped himself. This was like 300 years after David was gone. God says, but for the sake of my servant David. Catch that. 300 years later, his ancestors are living in an ungodly way that is actually inciting the wrath of heaven, but God stays his hand because of something a guy that has been dead for 300 years did. And God said, but for the sake of David. I'm telling you, if, if you, 
If you have the faith, step into that because you can release blessing on the generations of your family. Your activity before heaven carries weight before heaven. Scripture talks about when one spouse is saved and the other isn't, that there's a blessing that comes. I'm not saying they're saved, but there is, there is access through that branch in the family tree. God begins to deal with that family because God now has a representative. Uh, he, can, he can begin to move in that family line. And we need to realize that this is a very real dynamic in the spiritual realm. There is something about multi-generational activity. God being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's not just a phrase. That is an insight into the activity, the strategy of how God works, the pattern of heaven. God is always working multiple generations. And we can cooperate with that. And like I said last week, we need to understand... Familiar spirits are simply a strategy of the enemy, these demonic entities trying to leverage the failures of the family, whereas the blessing, generational blessing, what we're talking about this morning, is simply the way God created things, that God will bless children for the price their fathers paid. Inheritance was God's idea. We see it in Scripture. Our legal system finds it in the word. And inheritance is not merely a physical thing. There's a physical inheritance, but there is a, there, I, I have a physical inheritance. I got my mama's nose. When I, I got a biological inheritance in worship, I'll do this. My dad does this. It's the strangest thing. I'll, I'll be standing with them worshiping and I'll look and we're both doing this. It's like so weird. How did I inherit that? I have no idea. But we both do it. But there's also a spiritual inheritance that I've received. I told you last week how that, that angel showed up in my brother's office. Right at, I, I, My heart had been broken the night before. I was very concerned for one of my kids. And I came in very, very concerned. And my brother called me and said, hey, Dave, come in my office. I came in. Presence of God was in there thick. And Christopher said, when I came in this morning, the Lord was waiting for me. And he told me, that there's an angel that's assigned to our family. And as soon as he said it, I saw this angel standing there. And he said it was connected to our mother's and our grandmother's prayers. That is a thoroughly scriptural idea. Because Hebrews chapter 1 is very clear. Are not all angels ministering spirits? It means they serve. Ministering, serving spirits sent to serve who? The heirs of salvation. The angelic the angels are connected to your inheritance. That's why he defines the relationship we have with the angelic as heirs. He didn't say he sent to serve believers. Scripture's very, very careful how God uses words because there's all kinds of revelation hidden behind these words. And when he says they are sent to serve the heirs of salvation, what he's saying is that there are angelic assignments connected to the inheritance that God has laid up for you. And so we can pray into that and we can ask God to begin to move. This morning as we're singing that song, I grab my wife's hand and I begin to just release it over the generations of the Olsons. I'm praying, God, for generational momentum. That wonderful phrase you've heard before, that our ceiling would become their floor. That they don't keep fighting to get to the same place on the mountain, slide back down, and every generation starts at the bottom. But we begin to take things in the Spirit. Some of you, your kids, have been raised in the house of God and are running from the Lord. And I'm telling you, there's something in the air this morning that God wants to release. There's promise from heaven that we can actually Co-labor with the angels by declaring the word of the Lord. Angels are activated by the word of the Lord. Psalm 103, praise him, O you angels, comma, you who obey the voice of his word. So as you begin to declare God's word over your kids, I'm telling you, there are angels that will go after that thing. And make no mistake about it, this thing of familiar spirits, there's some of you, you can look through your family line and there's been this ravaged activity. And what happened is, 
people in your family were shaped and how they relate with people and how they do relationship and how they think in their house, their home of origin, and that activity lays the tracks for the enemy. Paul says in Ephesians, he talks about the strategy of the methods of the enemy. The Greek word there, methodoia, where we get the word method, literally means to travel amongst, to travel amid. In other words, see, we lay tracks for the enemy to run on, and we've got to disrupt those things. The way we relate, the way we think, the way we believe things, how we interact. I'm telling you that dysfunctional relationships are the primary doorway the enemy walks through into your life. And it's not that, I'm not saying demonic is not an issue, I'm just defining its entry point. I'm saying that if you will deal with the open doors, not just the legal open doors of being involved in the occult, or having gotten involved in sexual immorality, or uh, you know bitterness in your life, those three things will open the doors to the demonic. But I'm telling you, there's also this element of dis functional relationships. And we wring our hands down here saying, God, why is my life such a mess? Why don't you do something? And God says, you need to do something. You need to get in my word and get before godly counselors and help have them help you unravel the complexities of how you are deceived and operate in relationships dysfunctionally. You've heard me say this before. But what sounds true in a monologue is exposed for the lie that it is in a dialogue. A lot of us, because we won't talk to anybody, well, I don't want anybody to know. I don't need anybody, or I'm too embarrassed. Well, how's that working for you? We need to invite godly counselors into our life and say, hey, this is what I'm wrestling with. I'm not even sure this is wrong. I'm just not sure it's right, but something's not working. And often, they won't even have to say anything because as you're saying it, you will recognize, whoa, that's a pretty crazy thing I believe, isn't it? A lot of times, it's not even that you need some wise counselor across the table as much as you just need someone to be a sounding board to get it out of the own confusion in your head and throw it objectively on the table and define it for what it is according to the Word of God. But these things have everything to do with us growing up in the Lord and being delivered of the junk in our family's histories. And so when people say, well, I don't believe in generational curses, it, all, it was all taken care of at the cross, I understand what you're saying. It was taken care of at the cross, legally. It's yours, but you have to take it. And to the extent that you disagree with the word of God, you have given the enemy tracks to run on in your life. And when life isn't working, you need to come to the Lord like I did. I said, God... Your word says, I'm supposed to have an abundant life. This ain't it. Even speaking very generously, I'm not living in abundance here. I'm living in a very small world, anxiety-ridden world. Lord, what, what, what do I need to do? And God will bring people into your life. The story of, I wanted to say Hagar, it's not Hagar, it's Rahab is a beautiful picture of this. You see where the children of Israel are going to go into the promised land. And so what happened is Joshua, who, by the way, is the same word as Jesus, Yeshua. He's a type of Christ. What does he do? He spent, sends spies into the promised land. They're already free from Egypt. They're saved, okay? This is an analogy, typology in in the Old Testament. They're already saved. They're already gone through the water. They're already out of Egypt, but now they're wandering about. They've not moved into their inheritance. And there's a lot of Christians who live in the wilderness. They get saved and die there. They never move into all that God has for them. And so what did Joshua do? He sent spies into the promised land. 
We need godly people. We need to invite them to come in to the promised land of our own hearts and say, hey, help me sift through some of this stuff. And the place they went, where did they go? They went to Jericho. The first stronghold was that well, it was right, right over the border of the promised land. They had to deal with strongholds. Paul defines strongholds in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 as he said, we wrestle not... Uh, not wrestle, not against, he said, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the tearing down of strongholds, comma, we demolish arguments. So what he's saying is a stronghold is an argument or a belief system. It's a citadel, a castle made of thoughts, one brick, one lie at a time. And the enemy resides behind those lies and begins to attack your life. And then he goes back and he's protected behind the lies. So you've got to get at the lies. Well, this is a beautiful analogy because you see, where did they go? When they got inside the stronghold, they went to the apartment, the condo of Rahab the harlot. And it's interesting, it says that her house was part of the city wall. Isn't that interesting? So here's the analogy. You have this belief system that has grown up in the promised land, and the enemy resides there and mocks them over the city wall. You'll never take this land. It's what's standing between them and having everything God has for them. But then there's this prostitute who, whose house is part of the city wall. A prostitute is someone that sells themselves out to provide for themselves. It's what I would do with alcohol. Alcohol was my sin, but the prostitute in my life was my terrible anxiety and the self-rejection that I struggled with. So what does the spies do? They found the prostitute, because God, God spoke to me 30 years ago. I was walking to the pulpit to preach, and the Lord, halfway down the aisle, said this to me, every stronghold has a harlot. And I thought, Lord, I wish you'd give me that earlier. I'd like to chase that one down. <laughs> every stronghold has a harlot. These belief systems that we build up are often built around some woundedness in our life that is the key to taking that stronghold down. And the beautiful thing is this. Moses, Joshua, not Moses, Joshua, they didn't go in and kill the harlot. They rescued her. Matter of fact, when the city wall fell, it says her house was part of the city wall. So when the dust settles, there was this little sliver of wall. And a whole family stuffed in there, sticking out the window with a little red string out. There was one sliver of the city wall that was preserved. They didn't kill her. They delivered her, and she became part of the lineage of Christ. So here, here's the analogy. Here's the picture, okay? The strongholds in our life are the things the enemy hides behind to keep you from all that God has for you. So you got to deal with the belief system. But often behind the belief system is emotional woundedness. That that thing, began, we begin to build these beliefs around that woundedness to protect ourselves, And the danger is this, that it protects you from God. It keeps God out of your life. And if you really want your promised land, you've got to begin to confront these lies. You've got to deal with the strongholds of your mind. And we've got to allow the Lord to come in and touch that harlot. And here's the thing. God didn't deliver me of my anxiety immediately. Often what he will do, the very thing that was your greatest weakness will become your greatest strength. And he will use it to bring Christ to the world. The, the, the thing, when I was in Bible school, I remember our little professor, he, uh, he, he bought his clothes in the little boy's shop. Just this little guy. But he was a mighty man of God. And he said, oh, there was 14 of us in the whole school. He said, okay, everybody get a sermon and I'm going to Pick, I'm just going to choose you at random, and you're going to preach. So just be ready in season and announce. God gave me this message on Samson that was burning in my bones. But every time I would go to chapel, I would just shake, sweat. My, 
my voice would crack. I was so anxiety-ridden that I would, I'd get up in the morning and I'd pray through. Then at break time, I would go into the baptistry and just cry out to God, saying, God, you've got to strengthen me. And it was my anxiety that threw me on him. I wouldn't trade for anything in this world what I got out of the, that season of my life. Because the very thing that drove me to him was the avenue to the treasures I received from him. And when you are strong in yourself, the danger is that you don't see your need for him. When I was in Teen Challenge, one of the counselors told me this. He said, he said Dave, I feel like the Lord wants you to ask him about that scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In my, it was Lou Selzer, Rick. Lou Selzer. He says, he said, I want you to ask the Lord, what is my strength is made perfect in your weakness mean? So I went and asked the Lord. I was so excited because I knew this was from him. He showed me this big old glass of water, and it was full to the top. There was a little room for a little more water. He said, this cup is full. This glass is full. Then he showed me another one. There was just a little water in the bottom, this big old cup. He said, that's you, Dave. He said, you are weak, but because of that, there's a lot of room for me to move. That's why God will often lead you to do things in your weakest area of your life. And you never know if your gifting doesn't reside directly in your weakness. But we've got to throw ourselves on him. And so... If we're going to be transformed, you are saved as an event. You come to Jesus, but you're being saved as a process. You're confronting the lies, being healed in your emotions, and being disciplined in your will so that you can close the door so this generational dysfunction can't keep pushing its way into your family line. The real pattern, the design the spiritual design of how God created things to be is that parents would break into things that then they, their children could start where their parents left off. And they don't have to battle for those things. They receive a spiritual inheritance. The enemy has simply hijacked it. But make no mistake about it. This pitiful thing known as familiar spirits is powerless compared to God's pattern. What does Scripture say? The iniquity of the fathers will be visited to the third and fourth generation. But righteousness, what? We just sang it. A thousand generations. I don't, you, your family, you, you may have dysfunction as far back as you can see. If you start getting into your family line, you might think, whoa, that, those branches kind of go together there. And let's not talk. You got all this dysfunction in your family, your family tree. I'm telling you, you still have a claim because you can go back a thousand generations to Noah when everything was reduced to one family. Your great, 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 great grandpappy. It was less than a thousand generations. We can reach into that. That is a spiritual law of heaven. And so we need to understand that we can release blessing on the coming generations. What you do really does matter. And those of you who don't have kids or are done having kids, we're done, right? I just wanted to make sure. Just wanted to make sure. We're done. It, uh, we, pray for me, that look I just got. So the, uh, you carry the future generations in your loins. And the experiences you have in God really do matter. You can release blessing on the generations of your family so that in a hundred years, some of our children can say, Father, I want to remind you about my great-great-granddad or my great-great-great-grandmother. I've heard stories of how she walked with you. Lord, I'm asking, make good on that in this generation. Just as I get out our wedding photos and I look, Kathy looks the same, and I don't. I have two big, like, my glasses are like two big windshields on my face, you know, big hair. And it just stirs up my affection for my bride all over again. 
It brings to remembrance the vows we made. I'm telling you, God is much more relational than we realize. And you reminding him of things that you've had in God and reminding him of your family and those things, just as Solomon leveraged that with God, you can too. I'm going to ask the worship team uh, to come on up here. I want, I want us to close with that song, The Blessing. There was heat on that this morning. And God really does want to do something for families this morning. Some of you, you need to recognize there's, there's even a discouragement when people begin to talk about inheritance and godliness and uh, all those things and, you know, even Father's Day and you look back at the father you had or Mother's Day and you look at the mother you had or didn't have and all those things, there can be some discouragement that sets in. And I'm telling you that God is a father to the fatherless. You have an inheritance. If you got to reach back to Noah, reach back to Noah. But you are the hinge in your family history. You are the one in which everything can swing. And generations from now, they'll look back at this time and recognize that it was you who changed the direction because of your obedience to God. These things really do matter. I'm going to ask you to stand. Hallelujah. As they're getting ready, I want you just to lift your hands right now. Father, I, I release a blessing over this house. Lord, I release a blessing over these families. Lord, we remind you of the sacrifices of our forefathers. Lord, some of them were biological relatives. Some of them were in our spiritual family line. But Lord, we remind you and Lord, we ask that you'd stir up those affections this morning. And Lord, we ask for a tidal wave of inheritance, a tidal wave of blessing. And now, Lord, I pray especially for those who are running from you, Lord, that these blessings would begin to hit the shore of their heart. Lord, that you would begin to awaken. I, I saw this picture during worship this morning. The seeds of childhood, of kids sitting in Sunday school, and they heard the word, and I saw the Lord just hitting their heart and awakening those things. Lord, we thank you for your promise. Lord, we prophesy the promise that if we would raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that when they are old, they will not depart from it. Lord, we remind you of those promises. And Lord, we ask that you would release the angels that gather. Lord, that those angels would begin to bring in the inheritance. Lord, get those kids online. Lord, those children, those grandchildren, those great-grandchildren, we thank you, Lord, that your strategy is kingdom family permeating the earth. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.